Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another Draft Podcast on the Baseball America feed. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined, as always, by Peter Flaherty. What's going on, Peter? Not much. I'm excited to dive. We, I think we've got a fun episode today with a little bit of top 100 talk, some fastball shape. Um, and I'm playing hurt. I'm battling a sinus infection, but I'm I'm still I'm still juiced up. Oof. Um, I don't know that I've ever actually had a sinus infection, but they sound horrible. So hopefully that goes away quickly, Peter. Yeah. No. I know from if I'm if I'm a listener to this, if my voice sounds very annoying, I'm I'm right there with you. So. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm excited to dive into what we got going on. Yeah, so um, obviously it was top 100 week or day. I think it's probably top 100 week, it's fair to say, just given the amount of content we're running out. Uh, on the website, if you're listening to this on Friday, the top 100 was dropped Wednesday. Um, if you are a Baseball America subscriber, or just frequent the website. I'm sure you know about that. It was all over our, our social media feeds. So fun to finally get that list out there. Um, but I wanted to briefly talk about some of the draft guys on that list, um, just because there's a, a fairly large group, I wasn't sure. We, we did a Top 100 Roundtable podcast yesterday on the Baseball America feed. I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably see that show as well. Um, so if that's something you're interested in checking out, I mentioned this. Like, There are 16 2023 draftees on the Top 100. That feels like a little bit more than normal for this time, um, just given the, the draft cycle and given some of the graduations. Uh, and the relative state of minor league prospects and the comparative strength of the 2023 class. Uh, but there are some some players who have moved up significantly from pre-draft feedback and now post-draft feedback. I guess the four biggest names in terms of up arrow movers would be Matt Shaw with the Cubs. He is ranked 31 on the top 100 right now. Um, going down further, we have... Hurston Waldrop at 49 um, with the Braves. Then we have Colt Emerson at 52 with the Mariners. And then the last name I would think of as like an up arrow post-draft name would be Bryce Eldridge at 57 for the Giants. Um, One of the things that I've struggled with, I think, in the past is properly weighting the new information from pro debuts. I think early on in my time at BA where I was mostly focused on the draft and didn't do a ton of prospect coverage, I probably erred more towards the not reacting enough to initial pro debuts and pro data and pro scouting feedback. And I think I've tried to correct at least in terms of like what's useful to update your information. But those are the four guys that have really either taken a step forward or the data we we have seen with them has been better than expected. I'd say with Bryce Eldridge and Colt Emerson specifically, the power numbers have been tremendous. And then with Hurston Waldrop and Matt Shaw, two guys who, I mean, all these guys were first round 
picks and we had them ranked fairly high, but just the performance they showed in the upper levels of the minors um, really helps, I guess, add to the conviction of the profile. So are there, are there any 2023 draftees on this list who stand out to you? It doesn't have to be these guys, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, in that same stroke, Herson Waldrop had, I think, undisputed the best pro debut of any pitcher in this year's class. And Wyatt Langford had the best debut of any hitter. He's very well represented at number five on the list. And then I think with guys like Emerson and Shaw, Emerson in particular, um, I'm a big Matt Shaw guy. I liked him a lot at Maryland. Um, he He's very well represented at 31, but Emerson at 52, I think he's a guy that as these updates keep turning out, I think he's going to keep going up and up and up. I'm a huge believer in the offensive skill set. Um, defensively, he can more than hold his own at the dirt, um, regardless of where he ends up, whether it's um, at second or at short. He looked good at shortstop in a limited sample in Modesto, but Emerson's a guy of those four that you have mentioned mm. that I think we could see even inside the top 35, top 30 or so as as, as we keep going through the cycle. And mm-hmm. I'm at the equivalent of where you were when you just started at BA one, because I kind of just did start. I'm, uh, I'm 15 months in now, 14 months <laughs> in um, primarily draft and college. Um, but I think that, you know, as I get deeper um, I'm, I'm excited to see where Emerson ends up and scrolling down through the board. I'm trying to anyone that's a top 100 prospect in baseball, you can't really call them too, too big of a sleeper, but guys that we, that just missed the cut one that just missed the cut that I think could, um, very much pop on here um, and, and be in a solid spot as Tommy Troy um, infielder yep. in the Diamondbacks organization had Good a stand-up call. career at Stanford um, I he had a solid pro debut showed well in high Hillsborough um, still kind of getting adjusted but I think that once he gets a full pro season under his belt and gets some more mileage um, he is he's gonna you know thrust his way onto that list yeah, that's a good call. I think I don't really, I probably don't view the gap in talent between Matt Shaw and Tommy Troy, maybe as big as the list would indicate. Um, and maybe it's just easier to fall in love with what Shaw did in his pro debut, but it was a solid debut for Tommy Troy. I'm a pretty big believer in just his instincts for the game, his all around feel for the game, the hitting ability. Uh, but I do want to circle back to Colt Emerson and Bryce Eldridge specifically, because I think these are two guys who obviously. Bryce Eldridge had some of the best raw power in the class, but just the level of power that he showed against pro pitching with the swing decisions that he paired with that, I thought was really encouraging about his offensive profile. I've spoken about how much I love Bryce Eldridge as a hitter uh, on other podcasts on the on the Baseball American Network, but it's, it's almost shocking to see where his power is currently as an 18-year-old last summer um, in a relatively small sample. I mean, most of these samples are pretty small, but his power numbers were up there better than a lot of the college players who are three years his senior, much further along in their physical development. And then Colt Emerson specifically, you mentioned your conviction and just his hitting ability. I think the pure hit tool, the offensive approach, the swing decisions, the end zone contact rate, those were all traits that you had to feel really good about him coming out of high school, just given what he did against high school competition. That was there in pro ball. Um, he walked nearly as much as he struck out. The back of the baseball card numbers were good. But the power was significantly better than I expected it to be. It was an average 89-mile-per-hour exit velocity. The 90th percentile exit velocity was 
just under 105. And if you compare that to a guy like Jacob Wilson, who I think probably does have better pure bat-to-ball skills and contact ability, but who's also three years older, it's like an eight-mile-per-hour gap in 90th percentile exit velocity. And I would, prior to the draft, I would have assumed Emerson's raw power and Jacob Wilson's raw power was a lot closer. They were a lot more similar. But just given what Colt did with a wood bat in pro ball at this age is was kind of shocking and I think really explains a lot of why he moved up. I think I had him just inside my personal top 50. He's right outside of the top 50 on the BA list. And I think I agree entirely with you. It wouldn't be surprising at all for him to go out this year and just keep performing. And you really look at a well-rounded, left-handed hitting shortstop who just does a lot of things really well and is like suddenly hitting the ball harder than you expected him to. So he's a really fun one. Yeah, I completely agree. The hit tool with him is... I think comfortably plus at this point. And I, that's a very cold take given both what he did <laughs> in pro ball. And also the Mariners are going to take a guy 22nd overall um, yeah. if they are convicted on the hit tool. So cold take. And then circling back to an interesting point, I thought you made about Matt Shaw and Tommy Troy. And I'm with you that the talent gap um, isn't far off, but you, you can't ignore what Matt Shaw did in his pro debut, which was, he lit the world on fire in high A South Bend, and then he produced at an almost similar clip across 15 games in Double A with the Tennessee Smokies and was a part of their championship winning team. And while I don't think the talent gap um, is that far off, I think it speaks further to a point you made earlier in the show, which was that you know there is something to be said and value to be placed on a strong pro debut like that. Um, so I, I, I completely agree with you there. And then another guy kind of sifting through guys who are not on the top 100, who I think have that kind of upside. Um, Kevin McGonigal is another one. Um, he's an infielder in the yeah. Tiger system was taken 37th overall. Um, I was very bullish on him prior to the draft. He's more of that compact physical frame as opposed to Emerson's lean and wiriness. Uh, Granted, I think Emerson only has about two or three inches in height, but McGonagall is a seriously physical kid. There isn't as as much projection remaining, but I'm very bullish on the hit tool. The approach and swing decisions are are excellent. He didn't show a ton of power impact in his pro debut, um, but this kid has outstanding feel for the barrel. He's a gamer. Um, He's a baseball rat. I'm very excited about him and what he's going to be able to do in a, in a full professional season, because I think he's a guy, um, whether he ends up right on the cusp of the top 100, uh, like 101, 102, 102, when the next update comes out, or even on the top 100 list, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't be shocked in the slightest. And there are plenty of other guys like that, um, both on and off the list, who are going to continue to thrust, thrust their way up the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one specific guy that came to mind. Two guys that I'm really excited about from this 23 class to see in a full season in the minor leagues are, are two pitchers. And the first one, he's ranked inside the top 10. It's the number one pitcher on the board. It's Paul Skeens, the 1-1 pick. It's it's not like crazy to be excited about this player. But I do think for whatever reason, because his pro debut wasn't like lighting the world on fire and the consistent questions about his fastball shape and like comparisons to Yoshinobu Yamamoto – I feel like people are a little lighter on Paul Skeens than I am personally, and I'm really excited to see just what he looks like 
over a full season. I think he's got tremendous upside. I think he has ace upside. He's the best pitching prospect that I've ever seen at the amateur level. I'm really excited for, I'm, I'm kind of calling it jokingly in our BA Slack, the Paul Skeen's revenge tour, just to remind people how good he is. Um, because again, like <laughs> just looking back at what he did with LSU, it was unbelievable. The pure stuff he has, I've long been kind of the, the person who isn't really concerned much at all with his fastball shape. It, it's a lot of movement, it's precision, it's velocity. I don't think this, it'd be one thing if he didn't get misses on the pitch in college, but he got a ton of misses on the pitch in college with quote unquote substandard fastball shape. I think the slider is a double plus pitch. I think the changeup has a chance to be a plus pitch. And so when you have maybe not the meta fastball shape, but you also have two reliable weapons and plus control to go to, I, I just think people are nitpicking a little bit too much with him. And maybe I'm also being like overly defensive of him because again, he is ranked number nine. <laughs> it is very tough to be ranked inside the top 10 as a pitcher on our list, just given the attrition for pitching prospects in general. Um, so potentially I'm just being a little bit too defensive with Paul Skeens. The other one, and this is more of like a curiosity from my perspective and, and less conviction, um, but Chase Dolander, uh, he's number 61 on the board, uh, entered the 2023 draft cycle as the consensus top pitching prospect in the class. Slipped down the board a little bit. The pitch, the fastball quality, the slider quality, the command, they weren't all as sharp as they were in the 2022 season for him at Tennessee. Um, but he still was the third pitcher selected after Skeens and Rhett Lauder, who ranks just above him on this top 100. I'm very curious to see what he's looking like in his first stint in pro ball period. Uh, he didn't debut at all in 2023. I think that made sense. Um, really, most of these college guys that are throwing 100-plus innings, I don't really see the need to activate them given the just the time of the draft at this point. But if Dolander comes out and he's looking more like the 2022 version of himself, this is another player who wouldn't be shocking at all if he just started shooting up boards because when it's all together for him, it's a plus fastball, it's a plus slider, it's plus control, it's a buttery smooth delivery. He's really athletic on the mound. I love the way he attacks. He's got two additional pitches and a curveball and changeup that while they might not be as electric or exciting as the fastball slider, I think they could be uh, parts of a really well-rounded four-pitch mix. And so just kind of seeing what he's going to look like, what the pitch shapes are going to look like, what the delivery is going to look like. Is he synced up? How's the fastball command? Like all of those are questions that I'll be fascinated to see the answers to and just get a better idea moving forward of, of who Chase Dolander really is. Because if you've seen him at his best, it's really hard to shake just how exciting and electric he is as a right-handed pitcher. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on both of those guys. And with Skeens, the, the freak out is stemming from one bad double a start his first double a start after he threw 122 and two-thirds innings um at lsu so i mean he's not exactly like you know in in primo form here um in july or august whenever that that start was made and the fastball it's not an eight like it doesn't have that supreme shape like you were mentioning it was it's a little bit of a dead zone profile but he's got plus command and plus control of it He's regularly bumping 101 and 102 with it with a little run to the arm side. Um, there's a legit two-seamer there in the tank. And then you're also talking about a double-plus slider, a plus changeup, and then the, with the body of Paul Skeens, he's a 6'6", 235 workhorse um, who, I mean, it, it, it's very easy to envision him being the number one, number two starter for the Pirates in, in pretty short order. Um, and I think that, you know, again, 
basing it off one bad outing in double a is is a bit unfair to him yeah there's stuff to work on there with the fastball and, and guys in the at, at that level the minor leagues and especially in the big leagues can put wood mm-hmm. on a bullet um but i think this is a classic case of getting too nitpicky now if it if it kind of rears its head over the course of a full season then maybe i'll get a little um you know I'll, I'll i'll pay more attention get a little more iffy on it but mm-hmm. um my my thinking on paul Skeens hasn't changed um from this time or i'd say from the time he was drafted to now really hasn't changed all that much then yeah going back to dolander I really quickly before you do dolander the so do you remember when paul Skeens would have last pitched for lsu his his um pro sample was basically from august 10th to september 1st he had five outings all of them were just an inning or two um it was one inning one strikeout no hits no runs his first appearance it was one inning one hit no walks two strikeouts his next the next appearance was two innings no hits no walks two strikeouts his fourth appearance was his first in double a the one you're mentioning at point two innings he gave up three hits four and runs two walks two strikeouts and then he followed up um with another appearance in double a two innings one hit allowed no runs no walks, three strikeouts. So overall, I mean, it, it's really a, a very minuscule sample that we're even evaluating in the slightest. But it is a bit weird that he pitches his full season at LSU, throws 122 and a third or two thirds innings, gets shut down for some amount of time, and then comes back and throws 6.2 innings in the minors. I, I thought that was weird at the time, but um, again, like you, my my opinion on Skeens uh, hasn't changed since he's been drafted. Yeah, that was another weird thing, and I'm curious to see, you know, as we get closer to the professional season starting and into you know, the swing of things here with pitchers and catchers reporting, um, I'm interested to see if uh, there's anything there maybe. Um, I feel like we'd know by now um, in terms of uh, a health concern, but he last threw against Wake Forest. He didn't throw in the College World Series final. Um, he threw eight innings against Wake. I think it was June 20 something between probably the 20th and 22nd. That was when he last threw. Um, okay. But going back to, to, to Dolander, I think I'm glad you brought him up because I think he's a prime guy here who's kind of lurking in the weeds, so to speak, um, who's ready to shoot up boards. Like you mentioned, when he's on and at his best, he's as good as anyone. There's a reason why he was drawing such lofty comps. Um, leading into last season and he was viewed uh, as the kind of the clear number one pitching prospect until probably the second weekend of the season when Skeen started doing what he was doing but again you mentioned plus fastball plus uh, plus slider controls plus change up and curveball are both going to flash you're talking about another guy who's got that front end of the rotation type upside and I know it's going to be difficult being in Colorado not only is Coors a launch pad but Fresno's a launch pad and, and a bunch of their affiliates are, but um, I, I think that his stuff's going to play really good against Wood. And I, again, I'm, I'm with you on someone that could really make a strong first impression. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, unless you have another top 100 guy or, or pro uh, point you want to make, we could probably move on to, again, we talked about Paul Skeen's fastball shape. We can talk about some fastball shapes and fastball qualities of 2024 college pitchers. This week I had a piece, kind of a follow-up to the hitting piece um, a week before about exit velocities and chase rates. I kind of wanted to do the same thing, but for pitchers and look at fastball shapes, 
velocities, vertical movement, release points, miss rates, usage, all that kind of stuff, just to try and get a better feel for which were the outlier fastballs in the class, um, who had questions, who had maybe uh, tweaks you could make to get some improvement from the fastballs this spring, and just overall get like a, a little bit more granular on the if some of the fastballs of the top pitchers in the class and for this study i basically just looked at all of our pitchers on the top 100 um there are some pitchers who i think either as we expand the list or just later in the year it would be worth revisiting um just to get a, a bigger sample of pitchers guys like gage jump or brandon neely are two pitchers that weren't featured in this but i think if if we looked at some of their movement characteristics it'd probably be pretty exciting but for this one it was just Guys currently ranked in the top 100 outside of one Pierce George who just didn't have a huge sample, um, a big enough sample to really fit in. But I know that prior to the holidays, Peter, we drafted best tools for the college class. I'm trying to remember, who did who did you take for best fastball? I think I took Michael Massey, but you might have taken him. I don't remember. You took Massey. I oh, Who did I take? Did you take Brecht for this? I, I tried to go like I think I let I took Breck's slider maybe and I think I mm. took Neighbors' fastball. Okay, awesome. So I think both of those still hold up after doing this this piece as good fastballs. But are there any players who, after looking at this pitch plot, and you can see like we've got a plot with average velocity uh, on the x-axis and miss rate on the y-axis, and in addition to like full tables with all the data on these pitches, if you want to dig in for yourself. Um, but were there any guys that you kind of came away from this and said, you know what, maybe I should have taken this fastball or just players who are like, oh, I didn't realize X about this pitcher's fastball and I'm either excited or a little more concerned? Yeah, I, I think when looking at a graph like this or any graph in general, the eyes are naturally drawn to any outliers, good yep. or bad. Yep. Um, and so for this was one, a fascinating piece, and I highly, highly encourage anyone to check it out because it is fantastic it's an 80 like my almost like michael massey's fastball too um, too optimistic of a grader peter you're giving me too much credit <laughs> no but it was it was great but i i think that you know in looking at this i kind of i took off mathis benj and Braden montgomery just because i think those guys are hitters all the way professionally they'll be they'll be fine yeah, in the mom I, I thought about not including them at all but i kind of just kept them in just to have it yeah, well, like Mathis threw a legit amount on the Cape. He was a starter for College of Charleston. He's definitely fair to leave on. But in terms of guys who I'm a little concerned about, I think Ryan Johnson is is one. Um, he's right there just sitting um, at the bottom of the X-axis. Mm -hmm. And he gets minimal miss on his heater um, for the premium velo that he's got. And in looking at the traits of it, it's a true dead zone fastball. Um, which means it gets the same amount of vertical break as it does horizontal break. Um, yeah. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Because dead zone fastball, I feel like it's thrown around a lot. I, I have a decent understanding of what it means, but if you have a more detailed view of like what that actually means, I think that might be interesting for listeners because I'm sure you could educate me on this too. Yeah, we can probably tag team it. But basically, again, it, with Johnson on his fastball last year, it averaged the same amount of vertical break. 11.7 inches as it did horizontal break 11.7 inches and he's got that low release height but when it's coming to the plate it's almost just flat on a mm -hmm. tee it's very easy to see very easy to pick up it doesn't do a whole lot um as it enters the zone yeah and on the other hand when you're looking at the opposite end of the spectrum which literally here it's jansen kiesel <laughs> and when you're looking at kiesel last year he averaged over 19 inches of horizontal break 
and which means you know it has tons of ride and carry through the zone mm -hmm. but what also helps it and makes it more of an outlier is his release height of just over five feet and he's six foot four and he's attacking you from this low three quarters mid to low three quarter slot with low launch and it just absolutely explodes out of his hand mm -hmm. it goes through the strike zone and it, it gets on hitters quick um it's it it's got a ton of life and i think that you know for for someone like johnson when you're looking at you know what can you do to maximize that premium velocity um you've obviously got to refine the pitch shape Mm -hmm. And so I think for him, adding in a true two-seamer or a cutter or whatever it is, I'd, I'd probably go two-seamer with him because the slider with Johnson is a plus pitch. It's a true sweeper, and you kind of get that in on the hands to a righty with a two-seamer, and then you go away with a sweeper. Yeah, um, I think that would probably maximize his arsenal. Um, but the, yeah. The Johnson and Keisel kind of dichotomy we're talking about here is very interesting too because I think – a lot of times usage rate is a pretty good proxy for pitch quality, um, especially at the amateur level when really in college too, like if you're using a pitch a lot, it's probably because the college coach knows it's going to be effective. It's the pitch uh, a pitcher is most comfortable with. It's missing a lot of bats. And if you look at the overall usage rate, um, Ryan Johnson was dead last in fastball usage rate on this chart at 36%. And Keisler, who you mentioned, he was third most um, with a 72% usage rate. And, I think for the most part, the, the pitchers who are using their fastballs less frequently, there's a reason for that on this graph. And also, you, you had mentioned Keisel, who entering this exercise, I expected him to have some pretty silly numbers because I knew that he had some unique release characteristics and pitch traits. But the degree to which his he gets miss and the fastball shape from that angle is so unique. If you look at all of the pitchers who have a release height, just in this ballpark, almost all of the players with like a 5.7 foot release height or less have IVB numbers less than 12 inches. So basically they're not getting a lot of riding life on their fastball. And it just kind of shows you how unusual that is. Like typically I, I think hitters are probably primed to expect the ball to move in a different way from that release point. And, and this is kind of like the Cooper Jerpy effect as well, I believe. It's just such a unique and odd angle and movement profile for a fastball that, again, is not I – don't, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but Keisel averaged 92.4 miles per hour with his fastball, and that's like maybe a tick below the average of this player grouping. So it's not like he's blowing hitters away with velocity. It's not any, any sort of crazy Brody Breck, Chase Burns speed. It's just such a – such a special combination of release of pitch movement and honestly i think this pitch could improve significantly in 2024 just if he's able to throw more strikes he was near the bottom in terms of getting this pitch in the zone i think his walk rates in general have been poor throughout his college career there are a number of pitchers on this board who probably can get a lot of improvement just by throwing their fastballs over the over the plate more frequently but if you look at strike percentage or maybe even in zone percentage will be a better proxy here but if you look at in zone percentage he was fifth worst um of this player grouping with just a 40 percent in zone rate with that fastball like the top guys are, are the drew beams the the trey savages the tyson neighbors who you picked who are, who are near 50 percent with that so if you can throw some more strikes this spring watch out we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search 
match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, he's he's got a chance to really pop. I know right now he's inside our top 100, um, but with him, consistency is key. If he's able to put together a full productive season in Oklahoma State's rotation, and now it's going to be easier said than done because O'Brate is a very hit the Northwoods League as a true freshman, and the the walks were still high, but he was able to get by. And then last year, he was used a, a little inconsistently at Oklahoma State. Um, he was their midweek starter for a little while. Couldn't really find it. Then he started pitching later in games. He, then he got a spot start later in the year. The ERA inflated, but I think he averaged. I think he struck out 34 in 18 innings, with, but also walked 19 guys. And so going to the Cape, I was really curious. He was a guy that I had kind of had circled going into the summer as someone who I was very excited about to see how the stuff would play against Wood. Mm-hmm. And it was excellent. Again, he was inconsistent. The bad doesn't. The, the bad looks kind of bad. You, you kind of come away from the park thinking he's a reliever type with that fastball slider mix, but his good is, you know, it, it it's as good as any one that I saw this summer. The fastball was up to 97, 98 again with that signature riding life from that low release height slider is a true sweeper that would also flash plus. And then he developed a changeup, which at this point is a fine third offering form it it, mm-hmm. it had some late tumbling life to it but what i was most encouraged about was that improved strike throwing now he still had bouts with command yeah. but and it's a smaller sample size but during the spring season he landed the fastball for strikes at a 57 percent clip and then this summer he landed them at a 65 percent clip nice. um which i thought was if he can keep that up that's that's going to go a very long way mm-hmm. um and then yeah, I, I came away very impressed with him. And I again, what also helped contribute to the improved command was directionally. I thought he got a lot better from his first start of the summer to his last. 
He was falling off a lot towards the first base side. Granny still falls off a little bit, and there's a little bit of a head whack in the delivery. Mm. Um, but he's a lot more on plane towards the plate. So he's a guy that, one, is, has, has great present stuff. Um, but two, he's he's great clay because the makeup is yeah. is excellent, and he is more than willing to learn and and very coachable, which are traits that will serve him very well in professional baseball, especially with his arsenal. Yeah, well, moving on to let's let's talk about Brody Brecht a little bit. I mean, it, it, if you had asked me like ten years ago, if you just look at the information we had available, it'd be pretty easy to say, oh, Brody Brecht is the best fastball. In the class, um, it's 97.7 average velocity last year, which is more than a tick and a half, better than the next best pitcher on the board. But I kind of have like this formatted sheet in, in Google Sheets with it's, it's kind of color coded in all these categories. And there's really a lot of red, which is like a negative indicator. I have like green as positive and red as negative um, with this kind of conditional formatting chart that I have. And it's a lot of like red throughout Brody Beck's fastball. I, that doesn't mean I think it's like a bad pitch. But I think there are a lot of areas where he could maybe improve. And I think first and foremost is probably just throwing the pitch for strikes. Like like Jansen Keisel, he was near the bottom in both strike percentage uh, and end zone percentage with this pitch. I think only Marcus Morgan, his teammate at Iowa, had a lower strike percentage with the fastball than Brody Brecht. Um, if you look at his results against the pitch, just, just looking at synergy data, um, hitters don't do damage against the fastball. It's mostly all value that comes from OBP, Brecht hurting himself, just getting in deep into counts, putting batters on base for free. Um, and you also look at the usage of the pitch. It's weird to see 48% usage for a pitch that's basically averaging 98. I think only two pitchers last year in the entire country, regardless of draft class, threw harder than Brody Brecht. It was Paul Skeens and I believe Eric Swan were the only two. Um, so you would really expect... Honestly, I would expect him to throw this fastball more frequently. Again, Brecht has maybe the best slider in the country. It's a short list of players that that have a slider that can compete for it. It's like Chase Burns, Brecht, um, maybe some of these like reliever guys like Michael Massey or, or Tyson Neighbors have sliders that you could compare to them. Thatcher Hurd would be one. But I really feel like with the kind of cutting life he gets in the fastball, with the velocity, he gets a ton of ground balls on the pitch as well, which it, it, it does seem like more of a ground ball pitch than a miss pitch at this point. But I feel like there's a lot of room for improvement with his fastball, both in terms of shape and just efficiency with the pitch. And I'm curious what you think of his heater, because again, 10 years ago, you probably stick a 70 on this pitch pretty easily and move on with your day. I, I think you can be a little more critical now, um, but Brecht is also an immense athlete um, and I think he's got a lot of a lot of areas where he can improve and, and kind of develop. And he's far from a, a polished, finalized product like I think some other players like a, a Ben Hess or a Drew Beam might be. Yeah, it's interesting because his profile is so unique for a number of reasons. He he just started to focus on baseball full time. Like this fall was his first time ever doing fall baseball at Iowa. Um, he was a former wide receiver on the football team. And it is a it's a premium heater. Velo wise, it's again, he'll, he'll sit 97 to hundred with it. He's been up to 101, 102. Um, he got a one Oh four on a stadium gun. I know that was later debunked. Um, but the, <laughs> the Velo is premium. It's got cut and ride through the zone and the 28% miss rate on the surface, just the miss rate in general on the heater. Um, it's an impressive miss rate on yeah. his fastball. It's, and it's above average for just this player grouping, which are the best 
pitchers in the class too. So that's a good point. Exactly. But for Brecht, when you have the character, the, the velocity characteristics that he does, you know, I think that just the, the snap reaction and snap judgment is why isn't he getting more swings and misses? And I think a lot of it stems from a point you brought up is like the competitive pitch rate in the rate at which he, he kind of makes competitive pitches. And I know that it's something that it's improved allegedly from the summer into the fall and especially this fall. Um, but yeah. I think that's what it's going to hinge on. He'll get in. And even his last few starts in the regular season, 23, he had improved the strike rate. The, uh, the Iowa, I think as the Iowa data team over there had a, had a nice tweet with some, some, some numbers backing that up. So that was encouraging. Yeah, the strike throwing improved, no doubt. And I think what makes him so dangerous of a of a pitcher, and I know that there's gonna be a narrative about relief risk and 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 him ending up in the bullpen through the draft and even after he's drafted, no matter what he ends up doing. Yeah. Um, but I think what makes him so dangerous is that right now he's got above average feel and better feel for that hellacious slurvy slider than he does his fastball right now. And if that fastball feel can improve kind of like what Kiesel flashed over the summer. If he can improve that strike throwing, especially this spring and being just around the zone and in, in making competitive pitches, I, I think it's very clear that that miss rate is going to tick up and I'm not overly concerned about it at all because again, hitters aren't hitting it right now. Like they're hitting, I think under one, they hit under 140 against it last spring. Yeah. I think um, their slug was under 200 against the pitch as well. If I'm remembering accurately. Yeah. Like it's not a, it's not a pitch right now. The hitters are barreling. And I think that in looking at all of that under yeah. the hood type stuff, um, it just goes back to him being around the zone, being more competitive, getting in more pitcher friendly counts, not working from behind. I think if he can work ahead, get ahead and stay ahead, it's it's like a little league. You hear that from like a little league dugout, but it's true. If if, if he can if he can do that more consistently, mm-hmm. um, I'm very confident in that miss rate ticking up. Yeah, one of the things that I look at now more often than I probably did in the past, just swing rate against. And if you look at the pitchers who are inducing swings with their fastballs, the top of this list are guys like Ben Hess and Drew Beam and Luke Holman and Daniel Avidia, who has the slowest fastball on this list, but it's been extremely effective because of his command, because of the sinking and running actions of that pitch, because of a low release height. But if you look at the bottom of that swing percentage against list, it is guys um, with strikes concerns. They're either two-way players who you don't think are pitchers like Carson Bench and Brady Montgomery, or guys that, that we're talking about here, Brody Breck, Jensen Kaiser, Marcus Morgan. Um, all of those guys could do better just by making hitters swing more frequently because they have plenty of pure stuff um, to miss bats with. It's just a matter of getting it over the plate. And, and one thing that I think is interesting with Brecht, and I'm curious what you think about this, but when you watch him pitch, his arm speed is so fast and his arm stroke is is fairly compact. I wonder how difficult it is just to time that up because it is like a lightning quick arm action. It, it's got to be difficult to time just the release point up there. He's like a pretty easy mover on the mound, but the, the arm speed is just so quick. I wonder if like, that does lead to his elite velocity. I wonder if that also just leads to timing issues with him. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point for sure. Like you mentioned, the arm stroke is short and quick. He's as good of an athlete as they come on the mound. Obviously, he's a former receiver on the football team. Um, I think just, again, like you're talking about a guy that it's pretty low-hanging fruit with him to add at least a little bit of polish. And I think that the Iowa coaching staff, especially Coach McGrath, the pitching coach, 
Um, we're very happy to get their hands on him um, in the fall. And I, I think really work with him to, to add that. And I think that, again, there are just little, you know, tweaks you can make to his delivery and, um, and, and stuff like that, that, that should go a really long way. So I think that we're going to see for as good as he was last spring and for as good of his, as his flashes were last spring, I think we're going to see an even better um, Brody Brecht this year for Iowa. It's hard to imagine him not being the favorite for big 10 pitcher of the year. Marcus Morgan, I think is a chance to be right there with him. Um, so it's, it's going to be a, a potentially Iowa versus Iowa race yeah. for, for that award. All right, well, let's move on from Brecht. I don't want to spend the whole podcast on him, but I feel like we could talk about him for hours, and it'd still be fascinating and interesting because uh, he is such a fun pitching prospect. But were there any other players that stood out to you that, that were fascinating from from this or just fastballs that, that you want to chat about? Yeah, I think just from a, a maybe a validation standpoint, <clears throat> excuse me, for being – I'm particularly pretty high on Jonathan Santucci um, out of Duke, I, I think – you know, the fact that he averaged or, or had just over a 30% miss rate with the heater. Um, it both, he's got above average command and control of it. It it's been up to 96. It's got that riding life, especially at the top of the zone. Um, and then just looking at Santucci as a whole, as a prospect, got a very easy, repeatable delivery. It's aesthetically pleasing. The slider's also plus the changeup is also flash plus. So now you're going into the draft with a left-handed starting pitcher and he's gotten a lot more physical during his time at Duke. I remember spending time around him at, at area code. And this is when he was still hitting and pitching. Um, he had more of that, you know, lean athletic frame. He was still a strong kid with forearm strength, but he's gotten, you know, plenty physical during his time in college, as we often see with these guys um, just as they mature naturally. But you're talking about a, a durable six, three frame, left-handed starter with what I think, you know, you know, or three plus pitches we could be talking about fastball. Maybe you could have as a 55, but two above or an above average and two sixes. Um, that's not going to last very long on the board. And so I, I think that he's a name to circle as right now, a dark horse who could be one of the first college arms off the board. Um, and, and he was, uh, I, I kind of liked seeing him and was impressed to see him as a standalone. And then looking more on this chart, I'm trying to think of anyone else who said Danny Avidia um, also yeah. stood out to me because he's the, a guy that we had pegged as that pitchability special specialist arguably has the best um, control and command in the draft along with Wake Forest, Josh Hartle um, and the miss that he was able to generate with his fastball was also very impressive and a lot of that comes to his trademark low three-quarter borderline sidearm slot it's a release height that's sub five feet and he is i believe six four um it's kind of that long slingy arm action um fastball again if anyone that is looking at this graph as you're listening along it'll sit in the 89 <laughs> and 92 range um <clears throat> but again though it has that run and sink out of the hand and it especially plays well when elevated into the arm side. It's just that change in look for a hitter. It's coming from, you know, not down below, but from again, a very low release point and exploding out of his hand and going up and, and out. And it's a very uncomfortable look um, mm. for both right and left-handed hitters. Um, so it allows it to play up. 
So he was another impressive one to me. He in time out of video with the draft. I think that right now, I he's he's an interesting one to me. I I'm not sure if he ends up going on day one. It wouldn't shock yeah. me at all if he wins whack pitcher of the year again. But I think that he is a a mid to third fifth round type that you can feel really happy getting in that yeah, range. Yeah. He's a back I kind end of agree. Of the There's a lot to like about him, but I think what's really going to hurt him is that. He's a right-handed pitcher and not a left-handed pitcher. And I think the lack of velocity is really going to hurt him more than it might hurt a player like Josh Hartle, who also is towards the bottom of this velocity scale. Um, You just don't see pitchers that are not averaging 90 taken on day one very often at this point, just given the amount of stuff you can choose from. Uh, I mean, there will be some teams that buy into his command like you're talking about and think, okay, we have this foundation of great command we can work with. It's a low release point. Uh, he does a lot of things well. We can add some velocity. There will definitely be some teams that think that. I think he could really help himself out if he does get a few more ticks of velocity. If he's if he's sitting 92 instead of like 89, I think that makes it a lot easier to convince yourself that the heater is still going to be effective in pro ball. Um, but he is one that I would say like this chart, while he does a lot of things really well, like projecting that forward to pro ball, I would be a little more concerned, I think, than I was prior to this chart with him. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 with Avidia again, like this summer the slider looked it, it was again inconsistent in its shape, but it looked really good. Um the changeup plays nicely off the fastball. I don't think it's a plus changeup, but it certainly is a it's a 55 type pitch. Um his pitch ability and comfort on the mound is what stands out and again, as you said, um you're not drafting 89 to 92 unless you've got this kind of next level command and that's what Avidia has gotten again I don't know if a team might go for that on day one um but third to fifth round middle of the third round to fifth round I I think that's that's a prime spot for him to be taken definitely and one one other player I wanted to talk about a little bit there I do want to get into Ben Hess because I feel like his fastball across the board has really great characteristics um Maybe it doesn't like jump out in any one particular area outside of, I guess, horizontal break for a right-handed pitcher. He he was the most in that category. But Josh Hartle, to me, is fascinating. He's a pitcher who's not really throwing his fastball at a super high usage rate. He mixes in a lot of pitches. He's throwing a cutter, a breaking ball, a changeup. Um, and so I wonder just how this fastball is going to play at the next level, how the lack of power with that pitch uh, is going to maybe scare some teams away, even though he's probably like the most big league ready pitcher of this group. Maybe you could say like a guy like Drew Beam is that pitcher. But if you look at, I expected him to be near the top of this list in both strike rate and end zone rate with the fastball. And it's weird looking at those two numbers for him because Hartle is above average in strike percentage with a 66% strike rate with the fastball. But if you look at his end zone percentage, it's 42.6%, which is near like the bottom 10 or so. And I wonder how often it's just like, I, I would love to get edge of the zone percentage numbers because I imagine Hartle is near the top of that as a guy who has great command, doesn't have an overpowering fastball. And so he is able to find success by pitching just on the edges of the zone and is maybe not filling it up like a Drew Beam or a Savage or a Santucci or a Neighbors. Like those guys are all filling it up, have riding life on their fastball, get solid miss rates. Hartle is much more of a, I mean, the miss rate is solid with the pitch, which maybe is encouraging with that velocity, but he's much more of like a ground ball 
fastball pitcher who is getting ahead in counts, working quickly, mixing in a lot of other stuff. So I'm just kind of intrigued how that pitch mix will evolve in pro ball. What sort of power does he add? Um, and which teams, like I know there are just some teams that just don't want to take fastballs that aren't riding up in the zone. And if you're one of those teams, I'm, I'm curious where you would have Hartle on a board. But he's, yeah. he's fascinating. No, it's interesting for sure. And I that kind of edge of the zone percentage is I, I'd be curious in that if it's even if you're able to calculate it, because I guess to some extent it's kind of subjective, but watching him pitch, there weren't many non-competitive pitches that he made both during the year. And then also with USA, like he's consistently around the zone with anything, with everything that he throws. It's, I mean, he throws five pitches. Um, And I think that what's most impressive with him and, and he doesn't have that premium fastball velocity, but, the sequencing is really advanced, and for guys that are these command and control specialists like Avidia and Hartle, that's what you talk about. You don't necessarily talk about the pure stuff as much, but Hartle does have, you know, the stuff there is legit. It might not be that crazy loud fastball that, you know, his his rotation mate Michael Massey has. No one has a Michael Massey fastball. <laughs> um, but again, it, it doesn't have that signature ride in life or signature run. It doesn't have a ton of outlier traits. But the way he's able to sequence the pitches on the mound, he'll pitch backwards, he'll pitch with any of his five offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what helps with it, and he's got the ability to dot it up. And I, I think also, you know, the the curveball, um, it's got, you know, sharp break and big depth, and now we're, we're kind of getting deeper into Hartle. But the stuff with Hartle is legit, and I think better than what people give him credit for. Um, and at the next level, you're talking about, again, a 6'5 starter, left-handed, um, Mm-hmm. big time track record in college and then also on the summer circuit and i i think that with these stuff models the team that you, the teams that use these stuff models for heaters um well he might not be kind of at the top of their boards i again i think that he's he's someone that we're going to talk about being the first college arm off the board yep. potentially at least he certainly has that potential but he's he's a top 25 25 or so overall pick for me i think hartle is fascinating because for a lot of teams who either can't afford to miss on a pitcher or don't think that their pitching development is really where it needs to be hartle seems like a phenomenal pick because there's really not a ton you need to do to get him to that back of the rotation level and then for other teams who are either more uh inclined to take on some risk or who really think that they have pitching development dialed in at the next level they're like there's really not much more we can unlock here. Why don't we take a chance on someone like a Brody Brecht or like a Chase Burns who there's a lot of stuff we can work with and we can refine them a bit. So just the different pitching philosophies and profiles that the teams either will be more drawn towards or, or run away from is fascinating. But I also wanted really quickly, and, and I know we are, we're going on at length here, but Ben Hess, his fastball across the board was was pretty good. I mean, if you look at it on the chart, he's kind of in this little area of the graph by himself doesn't have quite the miss that guys like Jansen Keisel and Michael Massey and Fran Oshel do who've cleared like this elite 40 percent miss rate threshold but outside of them no one gets more mess uh, than Ben Hess he throws it for strikes at a really strong rate um, like I said previously it's got a ton of horizontal break it's almost 14 inches of arm side running life uh, he induces a lot of swings um, really outside of like he doesn't get a ton of ground balls and I think for the amount of miss that you're getting and for 
how effectively he uses this pitch, which is sitting at 95 miles per hour. Uh, it's just a lot to like. Um, I think Hess and, and Drew Beam both have really effective fastballs um, where they do a lot of things well with them. They use it to establish the zone, change eye levels, go to both sides of the plate. Um, these are really like dialed in, efficient fastballs. And, and maybe it's not surprising that guys like Hess and Drew Beam, who I think probably has an unmatched resume as a starting pitcher in the college level, um, it, it's not surprising that his fastball is really helping set up his entire arsenal. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Hess because I think that he's a guy right now, at least in this cycle, he gets one loss in the shuffle of all of these other arms, and then he's a little bit slept on. An injury cut his season short last year, but he was well on his way to another Team USA. Um, well, he he wasn't a USA guy as a freshman, but he was on his way to a USA um, invite and all-SEC selection. Got a huge workhorse frame, moves well for his size. His fastball, again, as you mentioned, Lowe's, 94-97, but he's been up to 98-99. It's got run and ride through the zone, and it's a low release height. He's 6'5". The release height is around 5'8 for Hess, which helps it play up. Um, and, and it just explodes out of his hands and gets on hitters quick. Um, I, I think it's a 60. Um, it's, it's hard to say that that's not a plus fastball, both, you know, when you look at him throw or when you look at him pitch, um, and you just watch how it acts and, and watch how effective it is. Um, very difficult to say it's not. And then he's also got an effective, um, slider kind of gyro in shape, which, we talk about a dead zone fastball having the same amount of vertical break and horizontal break you, in that same breath. You, a, a gyro slider is one that's very similar in, in vertical and horizontal break. Um, but again, it's effective. It'll flash depth. Um, and then I also really like his changeup. He'll throw up to both right and left-handed hitters. Um, it's got a ton of fade to the arm side. It's another you know, borderline plus pitch. And I think he's again a, a, a starter at the next level he attacks the strike zone throws quality strikes at that um he's got this very imposing mound presence thanks to his uh six five two fifty frame and when you're talking about day one guys in these early to middle second round types um i think he fits perfectly and i think mm-hmm. if you you know if you're a team drafting you got however you go in your first pick and you're, you're sitting there in your second pick um, in the middle of the second round, late in the second round, wherever it is, um, maybe even earlier than that very well could be. Um, and you've got Ben Hess on the board. It's, I think he's a guy that you're going to want to grab. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I would be really curious to see what our perceptions of Ben Hess would be right now. If he had thrown more than 70 total innings in college at this point, because, uh, he does a lot of things really well. Um, so yeah, I think those are the only names that I had in mind to talk about on today's episode. Again, I would definitely encourage you guys to check out this piece in full. You can see all the data. You can kind of copy it and manipulate it and look through things however you want. Um, but the chart's there, the data's there, uh, as well as some, some write-ups of some of the other players who were kind of fascinating to me on this board. But um, Peter, anything you want to mention or plug before we get out of here? Yeah, grinding away on the college preview stuff that'll be going to the website and 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 also magazine in the in the coming weeks. Um, Teddy and I we nailed down our first top twenty five of the year yesterday. Ooh, nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're excited about that, and then uh, working on those capsules as we speak for the magazine and also the website. Conference previews um, will be to follow, and so there's going to be a lot of college content coming out and coming your way in the 
in the next couple of weeks. Very cool. All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Um, as soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to be asking you for that top 25 so I can scan down it. That'll be fun. <laughs> Unfortunately, you listeners will have to wait a little bit longer. Um, but no, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for supporting Baseball America in general. We really appreciate it. You guys allow us to do what we do, um, and we'll try and bring you the best content we can. So for Peter, I'm Carlos. So long, everybody. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 